We are beginning a new series this week on the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And you might be asking, why are we going into a series on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? And I'd say, well, one, who doesn't like a little sermon series in the book of Revelation, right? (laughs) Uh, But there's more to it than that. And, and by the way, we, we are not planning on preaching all the way through Revelation, just these chapters 2 and 3, essentially, of Revelation, uh, of these seven letters. And, and the reason is because the, we believe these are very intentional words from Jesus to, to the churches throughout time until His second coming. They're intentional words that shape us into intentional people. These letters focus on key areas of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means we're going to see to persevere in the faith, to make it until the end. Now, before jumping in, because Revelation is a very unique book, I want to kind of start with the book of Revelation, just a quick kind of to get our bearings on on the book of Revelation in general, kind of like a funnel. Start there and then quickly move to then these seven letters, what's their place in the book, and and then to where we're going to be today with the first letter to the church, to the Ephesians. So first, Revelation in general, the author is the Apostle John. He's writing around 90 AD, and and this is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. He, He wrote first, second, and third John, some of the New Testament Testament letters. So we're going to see some themes that are very consistent. Where'd that come from? Sorry. (laughs) Finally, I've made it to puberty. Um, So John has a vision, and he's taken to an exile to an island in the Mediterranean Sea called the island of Patmos. And on this island, God gives him this vision. So John is the author, but he's really the mouthpiece of Jesus. Now, the audience we see back in chapter 1 is essentially these seven churches. They they were the first audience. This this was almost circulated to all of them. It was written down and then sent to them, and then from there eventually became part of the canon or part of the Bible. And so, as we'll see, these letters are meant not just for those first century historical churches, but they're also meant for the churches of all time. Now, the genre, uh, Revelation is very unique. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. What that really means is that it's about the inbreaking of this spiritual realm, of this reality that is coming, of a kingdom that God is bringing to bear on the kingdom of this world. And what's essentially happening throughout this letter is the, the veil is being pulled back. We see what's all around us, right? We see flesh and blood. We see the clothing that we're wearing. We see this building. We see lights. We, whatever we, we see people around us. But if we could pull back the veil on the reality, the spiritual reality that is all around us and see what the reign of Jesus Christ looks like, that's what the book of Revelation captures. It's meant to be incredibly encouraging to the church. That when we get kind of just focused in on our lives and, and we lose hope, we lose perspective, that the book of Revelation is meant to kind of pull back to be able to open our eyes and give us a new perspective of the reign of Jesus. That's why often it comes in language that's, that's hard to interpret because it's, it's almost hard for John in this vision to comprehend these realities. But just because they're hard to comprehend doesn't mean that there aren't things that are very clear that Jesus wants to communicate to his people. 
And this imagery is the only way you can understand the imagery of Revelation is you, you actually have to have an understanding of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we're going to be quoting in just a moment. I'm going to be quoting from one of the Old Testament prophets. They, they kind of becomes or is the what we call the echo chamber of Revelation. The images that are used are not merely, you know, kind of looking into the future and some vision of what's going to happen, and it's like, well, those are actually airplanes, or this is that, or this is, and people do all kinds of things when they're interpreting Revelation, and not that there isn't a future aspect to it that's, that's going on there, and there, there's a place for thinking wisely and shrewdly through what those things could be foretelling. There's also uh, what Revelation is doing in this vision is looking back and using the language that John would have been familiar with from the Old Testament prophets, and what's happening here is the Old Testament prophets were foretelling how God's kingdom would come to bear, and now Revelation is telling us the fulfillment of those promises. And so that imagery will come up often. Now, interpretive approach. There are lots of different interpretive approaches. I can spend the next 30 minutes breaking down all the different approaches to Revelation. But since we're not going through the whole book, we don't need to go through the whole thing. Here's the thing that most you need to know. One, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, G, the risen Jesus is speaking to John, and he says to him, I'm going to disclose to you the things that are and the things that are yet to come. Jesus is saying, there are things I'm going to speak into right now to these seven churches, right now what's going on in their lives, but there are also going to be things that I'm speaking that are going to take place, and they're going to take place between now and when I come again. See, 90 AD was a time of intense persecution. We're going to get more of the historical details on that next week. It was a time of persecution as the gospel spreading, and, and, and Jesus is saying, if you're going to persevere, if your faith is going to make it, if you're going to float, if you're going to not just survive but also thrive, then you need to have me pull back the veil and show you what's really going on all around you. Right now, 2023 what is going on in the spiritual realms with the reign of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus is making known to us these truths so we would know his power, so that we would have hope, so we'd be able to persevere. Now, these seven letters in particular, uh, the seven letters, again, were to churches that were in the first century, around 90 AD. These were historical churches. These aren't just kind of like, you know, models or something that they're throwing out. They're ideal churches. These were churches, historically, that were being written to. And, and again, these kind of stand for the churches of all time. Each of the letters has kind of a structure to it. It, it starts with kind of Christ's reign. It starts with some kind of a picture, and we'll break that down every week, of, of this imagery that's used to capture some angle or aspect of what it means that Jesus is reigning right now in the heavens. And then the second thing is uh, th these encouragements and warnings. We're going to see both encouragements and, and, and how John commends the churches, how Jesus is commending their faithfulness, but also some warnings, some, some, hey, some insights into where their hearts are going astray. And then lastly, he always gives promises. You'll see this language of conquering, that you will overcome, that you will make it to the end if you do these certain things. So he's these kind of promises for perseverance. Now, the last one there, this chiastic structure. You're like, that I've never heard before. What is a chiastic structure? Well, going along with Old Testament, kind of as the echo chamber, there's a well-known structure in Hebrew poetry, and it's also oftentimes used as a literary device for narrative. And it's called chiasm. It, it actually, I won't break it down, but it looks essentially like an X. X is pronounced chi. And, um, and so it, it's this idea, if you want to put up the next picture, where uh, 
each of the letters, they, they bracket. The first and last letter have a similar theme, as do the second to last and the, the, the second one, and, and on down. And so you can see how it's kind of laid out there to where then you have this central verse in the church that is essentially gone the farthest astray, is the farthest from Jesus, is in the most trouble. And at the center of that letter is this statement in 2.23, which is this, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What G, this is kind of this highlight, and, and I don't have time to unpack how, how they do this, although we've said again and again, Hebrew, Greek, they didn't have uh, spaces in the text. There weren't spaces between words. Hebrew didn't even have vowels. There weren't, you know, emojis and um, uh, exclamation points and periods and ellipses and all this stuff. They didn't bracket it out and have headers. So the way they'd emphasize things with a little short period of paper is to, is to essentially repeat things and structure things so that it lands on specific highlighted things. We as modern readers, not reading in the original languages, miss these things. There are lang there's language and patterns in the original languages that would clue us into this, but this central verse is meant to guide how we read these letters, which is Jesus saying, I know where your heart is. I'm present with you. I see you. I know the things that you struggle with that challenge you. And I'm going to give you very intentional words, very intentional insights, so that you would have intentional lives, so that you would make it, so you would persevere. Now, that brings us to the letter to the church in Ephesus, because this, lead, this church kind of operates as the first letter, as kind of the lead domino for the theme that's going to be throughout all of these other themes, that the issue that's underneath all of the issues in all the churches, and thereby in all of our hearts. Ephesus was considered, it was, it was a very wealthy city, it was considered a port of entry for all of Asia Minor. Now, I can put up maps, but Asia Minor is essentially the area from modern-day Istanbul down to Palestine. And the gospel had not spread to this area, but this is where the gospel was beginning to spread throughout this area with the first generation of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And all the churches are going to be in that area. This would have been the first church where the gospel kind of would go to, and John's going to send this letter to this port right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's going to go from there. Now, also John may be sending it there because we know historically that John, the Apostle John, lived in Ephesus and ended up dying there. So we know that John would have known the church at Ephesus very intimately when he wrote this letter. Now, the imagery then in 2.1 kind of gives us the, the framework or the focus of it. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What is being said there? You read it and you start just kind of making up all kinds of, you know, imagery and, and whatnot. Well, actually, the nice thing is in the verse right before it, Jesus has just told us what he means by this imagery. Look back at 120. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, this is when Jesus first appears to John, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what Jesus is telling them is, I am standing amongst the churches. There's this picture here of Jesus standing amongst the lampstands and going among them and saying, in other words, I am present with you. 
The letter is going to end with this promise of paradise. It's, it's this letter that's beginning with saying, there's this theme from the beginning to the end of Scripture of God walking with you in the garden, of God being with you in this, this new paradise. And in between where you are at right now, so many times it feels like He is not present, that He is distant. And what Jesus is saying is, I am there with you. Right now, if you could pull back the veil, you would see Jesus is here with us. But not only is He with us, but He says, you're like a lampstand. And, and where does this imagery come from? Now, I should say last night, I, you know, I went into my, our, our bedrooms have like, you know, where you can use an app and turn them on and then like dim them. And it's like really cool. And you do it once and you set it up and you're like, dang it, now I always have to use my phone for this. So it's actually kind of annoying. But anyway, so we're used to like electric lamps, right? Where we turn them out. The lampstands for them would have been a, a kind of a, this huge, uh, almost think of like a large candle. And it would have been right in the middle and it would have been this fire, and it would, have lit, it would have lit up the whole place. And it's the only way they could see. And it actually is from an Old Testament prophet where he gives the imagery. This is in the temple and whatnot, but Zechariah says this then about the lampstand imagery to explain it. It says, The angel who talked with me again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, What do you see? I said, I, I, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven, gold, seven lamps on it, and seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. That's an interesting vision, right? Lamps with lips. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I'm thinking, of course not, right? I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, what's being said there in Zechariah is that whenever you see this lampstand imagery, it's meant to be the very presence of God with the people of God by his spirit. And we're going to see this come up again and again where Jesus says, I am present with you, and I am present with you by my spirit. That I move in power, that I cannot be extinguished, that I am present. And Jesus says, I move amongst you. In other words, I, I see. I, I see your heart. I see your lives. Everything that maybe you think can be hidden, everything that you think, even the things that you're not aware that you do unconsciously, subconsciously. Jesus is aware. And, and what Jesus says in this letter then, says to all the churches throughout all of time, do you, do you hear this? I, I see you. And I know the thing that will first be the first lead domino that causes you not to persevere. And what we're going to see Jesus says is in this first letter is the main thing that you will run into is that you can so easily lose your love for me. And if you lose your love for me, that is a domino that just everything else from there will, will fall. And so Jesus addresses this, and we, we've talked about this often in Scripture. We see that out of the heart, our loves, it's, it's really what drives our lives. This is a biblical image you see all throughout, but we, we've summed it up in this phrase that because whatever the heart wants, our minds will find rational. Whatever you, you grab hold of and you, you set your love on, the ultimate things, your, your heart will rationalize those, or your mind will rationalize those things. Your, your affections will find those things desirable. And then also your will will find whatever it calls you to do to sacrifice for it doable. And so that could be anything in your life. 
Jesus says, therefore, make sure I'm your first love. Because if I'm your first love, then your mind will seek me. With your will, you will seek me. With your affections, you will love me, and I will never fail you. So that's what we're going to look at in just two parts then when Jesus says how to recapture our love for him. Because I don't know if, about you, but when I hear that, it's like, man, I, I immediately feel how so easily I drift away from that. And so what we're going to look at first is are the stages of love, and then second, we're just going to look at how to recover love. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these truths, Jesus. We thank you that you speak to us. Jesus, we thank you that you are here now. Spirit, we thank you that you're moving in our midst now. Spirit, we thank you that you bring your holy presence to us, that that's not just something in a, a book, a religious book that we read about, but it is a reality you are accomplishing. And even though we can't fathom it, we can't comprehend it fully, Lord, you bring it home to us, and Lord, give us rest in that reality. Change our hearts, and Lord, would you just help us to recover our love for you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus starts by encouraging the church at Ephesus, starting in verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So, so Jesus lists good things here, right? He says that you have toil and patient endurance, right? So that's hard work. Hard toil is working. You do the hard work. Perhaps this means they were serving others in the church, or uh, perhaps this just means like they were being faithful as a church. This, in other words, he's saying, you guys walk the walk. Right? There are certain pressures coming upon you, and you stand fast in your faith. It says you cannot bear evil when tested. You reject lies and falsehood. So in other words, they, they call out bad theology, they're probably studying their Bibles, they're, they're becoming knowledgeable, and they're rejecting those things. They kind of, they stand their ground, right? When all the pressures are coming and, and everybody's just what everyone else is doing, and they say, just come along, they, they stand their ground and they're faithful. There's a lot of admirable qualities here, right? They pursue holiness. Verse 6, it goes on to describe a specific example of how they're doing this. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Nicolaitans, they only really come up in the book of Revelation. So, who were these Nicolaitans? What's, what's Jesus referring to? Well, the Nicolaitans uh, were a group throughout Asia, Asia Minor, and, and these were kind of a pseudo-Christian cult or group. But, but what they did was they taught that you could participate in the local cults. Remember, the gospel's just gone into the Greek, like this Greek world with all the pantheons of the different gods, and they came along and they said, actually, you can, you can kind of serve Jesus, worship Jesus, and add these on. You can kind of have your cake and eat it too, right? Isn't that great? Just go along with the, the flow of things. And in Ephesus specifically, there was a well-known, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I remember reading church history, and it's still there around like the fifth century. There's a well-known temple to Artemis, who was a, I think she was the goddess of the hunt, I think, in the ancient world, uh, but should have looked that up. But Artemis was a goddess in the ancient world, and there was a temple there, and it was at the center of the city, and there would have been probably thousands in the population that would have been priests and priestesses on the roll, the bankroll of that temple. So this temple was central to the local economy, which again, it was a wealthy city. It was also kind of merged with the imperial cult and worshiping the, the Roman emperor. And so there were all kinds of pressures. It was the default of that society. It was what everyone was doing. It's what everyone was following. There are tons of pressure to join in. 
In fact, you'd hardly do anything. You, could, you couldn't have a job without joining in. You couldn't really go to the marketplace and spend money without the pressure to join in. You couldn't get married or date someone without the pressure to join in. On and on, everything was infused with this. All of life. So it's been very hard. And so Jesus says, I have this, it's for you. That you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That, that you don't just join in. That you don't just kind of turn your back on me and follow them. That you stand your ground. You know, modern, we, you're like, okay, what does that look like in modern day? I mean, we, we have things in our society. I mean, this is, I'm just going to be blunt. Like, this would be something like just not publicly supporting Pride Month. Think how much that can affect your life. This would be something like not being willing to say just, yeah, all faiths are equally valid. Oh, there's, Jesus never makes exclusive claims about himself, and you must believe him and reject other gods. It's, 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 it's okay. We can just kind of worship any god we want. It's a hard thing to say in our day. You know, it could be broader. It could be just refusing to participate in exploitive business practices. That's what makes the local economy maybe hum in some areas. It could be the refusal to everyone's dating, so everyone kind of has this, there's this whole marketplace of hooking up and whatnot, and that's how you do dating and figuring out if you want to marry someone. You say, I'm not going to play by that game, but I'm actually going to pursue God's road and faithfulness towards marriage. Not easy. <laughs> not easy at all. So these are all good things. These are all commendable things that Jesus is pointing out. They resisted, even though there was a lot of pressure, and they paid the price. It says in verse 3, then, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Just saying, you, you're not giving in. That's commendable. But then there's a big but. <laughs> my kids love it when I say it when we're talking about the Bible. There's a big but that comes right after that. Because Jesus knows even though these things are going well and these on the surface are going well, he sees something that's a crack that's forming in their soul. Verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, the question is, what exactly is Jesus referring to here, right? By abandon. You abandon the love that you had at first. What's he referring to? Well, obviously, he doesn't mean that you, you've abandoned me and you've run after all the other gods, right? He doesn't mean that because he's just commended them for not doing that. He doesn't mean you abandoned me by just not following me and just going off and living the lifestyle of everyone else around you. He just commended them for that. So he's not saying that that's what's going on by abandon. Some will argue that this is that they just lost this love, that they don't serve others, right? This is John, actually, the reason why is because John says in his gospel, in John 13, 35, he captures Jesus' words. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is it that love that they lost? There's not love for one another? Others will argue that their witnessing has fallen off, that they're not sharing their faith, that they're, they're not being outspoken, that maybe it's kind of like they're playing all defense but no offense, right? Like they're kind of defensively like, nope, I can't believe that, but there's never kind of going on the offense and making known who Jesus is, commending Jesus. We've talked a lot about when we share faith, it's because we're all, we're all missionaries, we're all witnesses of something like, and I'm telling you because you get your new smartphone and suddenly you become a, a missionary for Apple, right? You're like walking around like, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And you're telling everyone, they're like, I'm an Android user. Like, you shouldn't be. Android users are going to H-E double tooth. Anyway, but it's, you know, it's this kind of like war because all of a sudden we're willing to be missionaries for things that we love, right? We get this. We, we, this is why social media works. 
We love to commend things that we love. So did they lose their love and they're no longer commending Jesus? Well, here's the thing. Perhaps it's both. Perhaps it's something else. They stop showing their love. They stop sharing the love of Jesus. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter. Those are just symptoms. The root issue of both of those, of whatever it is, is that in their soul, their affections for Jesus have cooled. And out of that source in their soul isn't flowing that love. They lack the love for Jesus. You could say they, they run, maybe they're running hot, but they, their heart is cold. Now, how do they get there? I think, as I was like, how do you, how do you get there? And here, here's stages that we can go through. And I, I want you to be thinking, where, which stage could I, I be in? Because it's going to be really pivotal to recovering that love of Jesus. First one is, the, I'm going to call it Lost 1.0, or, or the Fall 1.0. This is when we just reject life with God. It's what we know is presented in Scripture. You hear that we're fallen, that God created a garden. He created humanity. He put us in it. He wanted life with us. And instead of pursuing life with Him, we rejected that life. We pursued autonomy, autonom, autonomous. It literally comes from own law. I'll have my own way of life. I'll have my own way. Thank you very much. I could actually be a better God than you. And we rejected life with God. So then there's a separation outside the garden from God. Now, from that state that state of brokenness, that state that breeds death, eventually then we come to love 1.0. Love 1.0 is when when we come to know Jesus. It's when we discover God's love when He pursues us. John 3.16, John says this in his gospel. He says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And there's this discovery of the fact that even though I've rejected that, that God invites me in, and it's, it's because of His love that He's pursued me. He forgives my guilt. He removes my shame. We even see this language of being called a beloved child, that God adopts us into His family. John says this, or First John says this, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so now what becomes central to who we are is we're embracing this love of God. This becomes our identity, that our guilt, our past, our striving to make something of ourselves, of trying to just bury our shame, numb ourselves, all these things fade away because now, before the God of the universe, who's the one that matters the most, He says, you are my beloved child. You are mine. And we're embraced in his love. That's the first. It's beautiful. But what John's, well, John, Jesus, I keep using him interchangeably. What Jesus says here is there is a danger. There's a danger that we assume because, you know, we overcame lostness 1.0. We've discovered 1.0 that we become blind or numb to the fact when we drift into lostness 2.0. And what Jesus is saying, and this is the key moment of this morning to consider, that we easily, our default will be to forget who he is and what he has done in his love and drift into lostness 2.0. To drift into this state where we replace the love of God with lovableness. Now, what do I mean by that? I I originally had phrased this as lifestyle. You know, we we replace the love of God with a religious lifestyle. That that seems to be what's happening here, right? Like a religious form of life that's devoid of the love of God. We're like, yeah, religion, ah, smack in the face, right? 
It becomes our primary love, right? We, and what we see here for the Ephesians, and this could parallel with us where we, you know, we're fighting the culture wars. We're standing for truth. We serve the church, right? When I was in, I remember when I was in seminary, which is where you go to school to become a pastor, and, uh, and they have this old saying where they say seminary can very qu- quickly become cemetery, and the reason for that is because you, you get so sucked into this micro-focus on having everything right, but you forget just to love, just abide in the love of God. You forget the, the, what really the whole point is. So you can exchange the love of God for a lifestyle. But then the, the question I had was, how do you get there? I think what Jesus is getting at here is, yes, they have this lifestyle that's doing this, but how did they get there where they got back to this place where they fell out of love? You lost your first love. How did they get there? I think it's something for us. I think it's quite simple. We forget that what makes us lovable is God's love for us. So what happens when we forget that what first made us lovable, that that sense of being enough, of being sufficient, of just being at peace with who we are, with our identity, that what first brought us that peace, that gave us that sense that you are loved, was the love of God. But what happens is we forget that, and then we go about trying to pursue the religious life as a way to make ourselves lovable to God, to prove we are worthy of the love of God. For the Ephesians, again, it was that, you know, stalwartness, wisdom, valiancy for truth. Perhaps for us, it's similar things. We kind of leave behind this message of the grace of God, that God embraced us in His love, and now though we go about and it's, it's all in, in our attempts even to do good things, to defend the faith, to serve God, to serve others, all these things that start off with good intentions, our hearts slowly drift, and then our lives, our hearts focus on those things. And now what actually makes me lovable, what actually gives me that sense that I am enough, that I am righteous and in right standing, Lots of things. I'm smart enough in our day and age that I can grab attention, that I have enough followers. I mean, it could even be just niceness, right? Respectability. They can all be good things, but they can also, Jesus is saying, be motivated from a deep sense of just this place of insecurity because we're not embraced in the love of God. And what happens is then it's like our lives are no longer driven by the love of God, even things that can look on the surface like service of God, defense of God, defense of the church, defense of truth. Even those things which Jesus is putting his finger on right here in this letter to the Ephesians. Even those things can be coming out of a heart that is far from the love of God. And they're actually, Jesus says, I don't want this for you because then what's happening is your life is just driven by this endless need to prove you're enough, you're lovable, you have enough insight, you're strong enough. And what seem like good Christian acts flowing out of the love of God are actually attempts to get into the love of God. The problem is, too, of course, when it works because it's kind of like you climbed up the ladder of the love of God and then you don't need that anymore. Man, guys, I'll tell you, that's a danger as a pastor. In all of our lives, it's a danger. 
Now, so how do we rediscover the love of God? Love 2.0. God doesn't, or just let's go to rediscovering the love of God. Love 2.0. God doesn't love us because we are lovable. God loves us, or we are lovable because God loves us. Let me say that again. God does not love us because we are lovable. We are lovable because God loves us. This is why all the way back, starting in like Deuteronomy 7, you have God saying, I chose you, not because Israel, you were more numerous than all other people. You were more talented. You were bigger and stronger and mightier. There are like all these weaklings in Israel standing like, and he's like, I didn't choose you because you're the cool crowd, right? Like, I didn't choose you because you made something of yourself. And I looked down and I was like, there's, they're the alphas. They're on my team. What it says, he says, I chose you because I set my affection upon you. See, ultimately, God says, I am love. First John 4, one of John's letters says, understand this, God is love because he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal love and delight within himself, and God has made you to know that love, and God sets affection upon you. His Son comes in love, and the Spirit comes and opens up your eyes to receive that love. Where what makes you lovable, deep down more than anything in this world could, is that the eternal God of the universe, who is love himself, has set his affection upon you. And what, all throughout the New Testament, what we see is this language of then discovering that our lives are meant to be embraced and lived in that love. This is why we have things like, I made known to them, Jesus' high priestly prayer, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's saying, I want them to know your love. The love that we have, Father, the love that we have, that you love me, Spirit, that we have in the Godhead. I want to invite them into knowing that. We want to set that upon them. I've come to give them that. Spirit, would you go and give them that? He says, I want you to know that love, to be immersed in that love. Now, and what we have then is it's bracketed in the letters again with verse 1. You have this imagery of Jesus walking among them, kind of like in the garden. And then we have at the end in verse 7, he says, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. You have this, this bracketing of the letter with Jesus saying, I want you to know first and foremost my love for you that I've made. I want to make a home with you. Don't live as orphans. Just every day impoverished and hoping you'll be loved to prove yourself with somebody passing by. You are my child, Jesus says. I've come to make a home with you. This is why Revelation is going to take you straight to being embraced in God forever in his love says this in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sea is a symbol of evil, so evil is gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Look at that picture of love and commitment. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Nothing that you do can make you more lovable 
than the reality of this God who promises to bring you home, what makes you lovable. Nothing can make you more lovable than the fact that he came into this world and died and rose again to embrace you in his love. He says, don't forget that. So how do you recover it? Lastly, that big therefore then in five. We went from the big but to the big therefore in verse five. It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and I will remove my lampstand. There is a warning here where Jesus says, listen, don't just play a game where you sit back and you're like, well, I don't feel love, right? Like imagine if I did that in my marriage, right? Like you sit down and like my wife and I are having issues and I'm not feeling love and you're like, well, you should, it's like I should just feel love. I'm married. You're like, maybe you should work at it. You're like, maybe I should just feel it. You're like, well, we're not going anywhere now, right? It's not, that's not how love works. You work at love. Ask any married couple. You work at love. And so Jesus says, work at. So first one he says, he says, to intentionally remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore. Intentionally remember. The joy, the life, the hope. If you're in a place this morning where you're going, yeah, that sounds like, man, I feel it. My heart is cold. I've kind of drifted from this. Or I've just over time, like all of a sudden now, I'm not even realizing it till now, but there's this place where I was. I'm not saying we're always chasing a mountain high experience. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, remember what I've done and pursue that. Don't just forget. Have that love overflowed, and why? What did you discover? Well, John says this, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, what I just said, what makes you lovable is not you being lovable, and therefore God loves you. Love is this, that he first loved us. Romans 5.8, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us while we are yet sinners. The way to recover your first love starts with remembering first who loved who first. Who loved who first? If anything in Scripture, you see that before the foundations of the earth, Jesus saw you and was predisposed to move and love towards you. You know, it reminds me of my, uh, our four-year-old, she woke up about it. She was always like the most compliant child and happy, and it was like easy. And uh, I remember then one morning we joked she woke up. It was like she woke up and she was like, wait a minute, I'm in charge, right? It's kind of like then she walked out, and ever since then, no longer, no more compliant child, right? Like she walked out and she was like, oh, I'm the queen of this house, Right? Like, she, it's like she forgot everything we trained her on and everything we taught her. And, and, so, and, and I say that because I think every morning in a similar way, we kind of wake up and it's like, I have to prove myself lovable. I, 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 have, to, I have to get to my phone. I have to get to the emails. I have to, I have to make the money. I have to make the chat. And there are all kinds of pressures in our lives, right? People want us to make money so that then they would love us and they want us to perform in ways. So they, we experience all kinds of broken forms of love that are not the love of God. And God says every morning you wake up and you so easily forget. We're gospel amnesiacs. We forget so he says, remember, you have to intentionally remember and abide in my love, rest in my love. And the second, intentionally repent. It says, repent, repent. 
To turn, repent just means to turn, to acknowledge, yes, I'm over here, my heart's grown cold, to turn and, and identify where you've made it about lifestyle, um, identify where you're just trying to prove yourself to God and prove yourself lovable to those around you. Usually what you're trying to do is horizontal, uh, horizontally with people, people, sorry, my mouth is dry, with people, and it's a symptom of what's actually going on vertically with God. Like, I'll find it first, it'll usually surface with my wife where I get really insecure in certain areas. I'm trying to prove myself, but you'll find yourself trying to prove yourself horizontally because of vertical. And God says, repent of that, and then intentionally respond. Do the works at first, he says, that you did at first. Think about the works that you did when you first came to know Jesus. If you're, if you're a Christian, remember those first weeks when, like, you knew Jesus? Remember how, like, you were just, like, bubbling with joy? You were, like, humming songs all everywhere you went? You were, like, letting people merge in traffic in front of you? Like, holding elevators, right? Like, tipping like you're a rap star, right? Like, everyone, every single waiter is like, you're just so happy. You're like, I'm serving the king, right? Like, everything was great. Like, Jesus is saying, do you remember that? Jesus says, sometimes you need the do the works to crank your heart awake. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. All again and again in Scripture, we, we work out, we apply ourselves, we invest in our faith, we follow Jesus. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. It's a Dallas Willard quote. You have to do the work of love. You have to cultivate it in your relation with Jesus, just like with any other person. Why? Because he's not just a thing. He's a person. It's a relationship. He's God. One of the things that's coming up, and I, could, I need to land this plane, I want to really encourage you, if one of the areas where you're struggling to remember and to know these truths, to apply them to your life, in God's Word, you need to be in God's Word regularly to remember and so I would encourage you, if in a few weeks we're doing the Bible workshop, it's three weeks, you would be there all three weeks, we progress through a letter in the New Testament, we're going to do Philemon, and we're going to work through it and to get the basic tools for reading God's Word. And so if you're going, man, I, I don't feel comfortable being in God's Word, I want to be able to remember every day and read God's Word and glean from it, then I would encourage you to sign up for that. We are going to cap that class, so do sign up for that. It starts, I think, the, weekend, the Sunday after Labor Day. But lastly, then intentionally relish. Look at verse 7. It says, He who has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. One of the ways that we remember is we look forward. That we relish where we're headed. That every day we remember that this life is not all there is, but that one day we will be embraced fully in the love of God. Jonathan Edwards, a theologian, he called heaven a place of love. And this, listen to this, how he describes it with being with God. I want to end here. He says, there heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to eat or to drink at and swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world with a deluge of love. In heaven, one day we will be fully, the penalty of sin has been removed. We are now currently persevering because the power of sin is being overcome. But one day we know that we have this state of paradise with the promise that the power of sin and the presence of sin will be completely removed and replaced with the embrace of the love of God. Think about if every day you just wrote down a statement about how today, putting it in perspective of that eternity. It's so simple, but it really would change everything. 
So here's the thing. Jesus is saying, pull back the veil. Do you love me? Don't settle for trying to prove yourself lovable. Don't live that life. He says, turn to me. Turn to the one who first loved you. And do the works and rediscover a love that will never, ever, ever let you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. And Lord, we ask that you would bring them home to our hearts. Spirit, would you do this work wherever we're at, whichever stage we find ourselves in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.